Good morning. I too like to welcome each of you to worship service. We could we bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here and worship you. Thank you that we have the freedom in this nation to gather unhindered. We can do it in the open and don't want to be secretive about it. Just pray you'd be with me this morning as I share. Pray be the words you have for me to share. Just pray you get honor and glory from this. In your name we pray. Amen. You could turn with me for a scripture lesson this morning. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, shewing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And now ye know... What withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time? For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they might, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word of our epistle, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and work. Christians in a Christian society. What is a Christian society? Do we live in a Christian society? Has there ever been a Christian society? What would a Christian society look like? Can there even be a Christian society? 
If there is no such thing as a Christian society, how do we as Christians relate to a supposed Christian society? In the early 300s, Emperor Constantine saw a vision in the sky, at least he said he did, of a cross, and he was heard a voice from heaven. He said, he said, said, and this sign conquer. So he put the cross on his shields and everything and went forth conquering. And he declared Christianity to be the official religion of Rome. And Europe has been considered Christian ever since. As recently as 2010, 76% of Europe identified as Christians. Even in Russia, which is partly in Europe, 68% of Russians identify as Christians. In South America, it's even better. 90% of South Americans identify as being Christian. And I might mention that these figures will vary according to who did the survey and when they were done. These numbers are declining. America was founded on Christian principles, right? We're considered a Christian nation, right? Interestingly, though, numbers are a little lower in America. 64% of Americans identify as Christian. As a Christian nation, we have divine favor, right? Aren't we God's chosen people? Isn't America the new Israel? I think all of us here live in Pennsylvania. Isn't Pen- That's even better yet. Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn. He tried what he called a holy experiment. He granted religious freedom to his people and invited people of all different faiths to come and they could practice their faith unhindered. He even started out officially rejecting warfare. Some thoughts to consider as we look at this title, Christians in a Christian Society. We could use the term society and nation interchangeably and I will do that some this morning. could be a society, could be a nation, either one. But the first point I want to look at is Christians who live in a Christian society realize that they are part of another kingdom. In Hebrews 13, verse 14, we read, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. we are part of another kingdom. This kingdom is worldwide and knows no political boundaries. Peter came to this realization when he met Cornelius. Peter believed that the Jews were God's chosen people. And he had some things to learn, yet as the church age began, In Acts 10, verse 34, Peter says, Then "Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. appears that a light came on in Peter's head. He had this revelation that people of God can be anywhere. God doesn't just have the chosen Jewish nation anymore. God is no respecter of persons, and neither should we be. We cannot think that we are better than someone else from another society or culture just because of who we are, where we were born, and where we live. Christianity is not a nation of one country. Anyone, regardless of their heritage or country, can be a child of God and our brother or sister. This kingdom has no political boundaries. And because of that, 
Christians should not participate in carnal warfare, among other reasons. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that is exalted in itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I believe I'll stop there. Our weapons are not carnal. We do not participate in carnal warfare. Now this could be a whole message in itself. Just touching on a little bit. Because we live in a so-called Christian society that justifies warfare in a carnal manner. But we do not war to advance the cause of our king. And yet our society often tells us, possibly more so even in the past, we are told that we have a duty to our country. People who say such things assume that their country has divine favor. If that were true, I believe there's only two conclusions we can draw. At least there are only two I could come up with. One conclusion would be that only Americans, and perhaps our allies, are Christians. Well, that goes against Peter's observation, because Christians can be anywhere in the world. The other conclusion you could draw if Christians have obligation to country is that Christians everywhere have a duty to war on behalf of their country, regardless of the country. That makes for an interesting situations. What about a Japanese Christian in 1941? Did that Japanese Christian have the obligation to help the bomb Pearl Harbor? Interesting thought. If Christians have a universal responsibility to country. In Germany, there were professing Christians who got caught up in the spirit of nationalism, which we'll look at nationalism a little later. They got caught up in that spirit, and they joined Hitler's army and did as they were ordered. Was that okay? Americans believed that that the, German, the Nazis were not people of God, and yet the people of Germany believed that they were the people of God and Americans were wrong, and everybody else. If Christians everywhere have a duty, regardless of their country, Christians at times then have a duty to war against each other. And it's God's will they do so. Out of duty to their country. Hope I'm not confusing anybody here. I'm just trying to work the logic here. C.S. Lewis believed this. I think it was in his book, Mere Christianity. He talked about this. He talked about a scenario, and he did take part in World War I, I believe it was. He analyzed this, and it was his opinion that if he, he was from England, if he and a German Christian were both fighting on opposite sides of the battle, and they both pointed a gun at each other, and they both shot at the exact same time, and they both died, they would go to heaven and laugh about it. I think I could probably find a spot in the book with a little bit of time. That doesn't really make sense. How can it be God's will for Christians to shoot at each other. I believe it's simpler to believe that Christians do not participate in carnal warfare because we realize that we are part of another kingdom. Because we're part of another Christ of another kingdom, Christians should not get involved in the politics of the country in which they live. Certainly there are some things 
that we prefer from the government. We would prefer the government make good laws. We prefer the government keeps law and order. That's pleasant for us, that there's not anarchy. And we would like to keep our freedoms. We enjoy the freedom to meet for worship without fear of the authorities bursting it and hauling some off to jail. But these desires may at times create a temptation to get involved in the political process. In this country, we have the, we have the opportunity to vote for political leaders that we would feel to be the best. And yet, this creates a conflict of interest. There are two kingdoms, and they cannot mix. For example, a Christian should help those who are in need. But a country must have secure borders. There's a lot of people desiring to get into America who are only looking for a better opportunity. I think most, if not all, of our forefathers, at least some of them, came to America at one point or another with that desire. And yet now there's those who say we must have secure borders. And I'm not knocking that country. From a standpoint of a nation, there has to be, there has to be secure borders because there's some that want to get in to do harm to the country. And yet, as a Christian, we should help people regardless of the risk. Yet a country cannot do that. So the two kingdoms don't mix. Just one example. But I would say that Christians should not criticize the government for doing what the government does. When the government secures the borders for their benefit and the benefit of the, and good of the country... I don't think we should be criticizing them for doing so. We may prefer certain laws, but we prefer laws to be made a certain way for our benefit, that our freedoms be maintained. But if we get involved, the ones who we think would make the laws the way we like will at times have perspectives that we would disagree with. For example, they could get involved in a war. They expect us to get involved if we don't and persecute us and persecute us if we don't. The irony is that the political conservatives who we may think that we identify with a little bit better on their perspectives are still in favor of policies that we could never support. For example... Warfare. The political conservatives tend to be the more patriotic, I believe. But since we there's a two kingdom principle, we as Christians will live in earthly kingdoms while we are still in the flesh. That's just the way it is. <clears throat> we live in earthly kingdoms. And I think it's okay at times to make observations about the things that we see going on and shake our heads and say, that's just not right. It's going totally going against God. And I believe that while we're in, these earth, in this earthly kingdom, it is, a, it is all right to use the freedoms that we've been granted. But to remember, we are not entitled to them. And we certainly don't fight for them if we feel that we may lose them. We have the privilege to not need to worship in secret. I think it's quite all right that we don't go hide in the woods to worship because we don't have to. Even though other Christians in the world do have to. The Apostle Paul did appeal to Caesar. He used his Roman citizenship for his benefit, even though most Christians would not have had that privilege. And at least once, anyway, he used his Roman citizenship to avoid getting a beating. So from Paul's example, we could conclude that it's okay to appeal to a higher authority 
higher earthly authority if we have the opportunity to do so. As Christians, we need to remember that this world is not our home. We are strangers and sojourners here, regardless of how comfortable we are here. And we must remember that we are part of another kingdom and don't claim any earthly kingdom. We just live here. And we're not better than another country just because we're Americans. The second point I'd like to look at is Christians who live in a Christian society realize that there never was nor ever will be a Christian society. How have the Christian societies of the past fared, the so-called Christian societies? The Catholic Church took over in Europe and was a state church. And they controlled the political system to a fairly good degree. The church leadership had power over the kings. And yet it was church in name only. The church was very corrupt. The many church leaders were very immoral. When the Catholic Church took over the when the church took over Europe, the dark ages began. I asked Google what why the dark ages are called the dark ages, and Google said it was due to a supposed period of decline in culture and science. And there is very little written documentation from the period to prove otherwise. And it's true, we don't, from about, there's about 900 years there in history where we don't have much at all recorded. We know a whole lot more about the beginnings and the whole Roman Empire than we do about the Dark Ages. We know a lot more about the first 300 years of church history than we do about the next 900 or so, or 1,000. We don't know much about church history until then, until the Reformation began. During that, but yet the Dark Ages were dark, not just from a perspective that we didn't know much about them. There was spiritual darkness. As I said, the church was very corrupt. And how did it get there? It started with Constantine seeing the sign in the sky, as I mentioned earlier. And he went forth conquering. And the church and state merged, and the church began to take part in carnal warfare. There was a merging took place, and the church committed what I would call spiritual adultery. And we'll take a little bit further look at that later. And the church persecuted anyone who pointed out how unbiblical the church was. Persecuted anyone who even desired to live a holy life. People could be accused of being a heretic just because they wanted to do right, from what I understand of history. The Pope, not the Bible, was the final authority. And during that time, people were persecuted. Since it was a dark age, we don't have much recorded history. But there is little glimpses that there was a faithful remnant during that time. Not sure we know too many groups, but there was the Waldensians during that time who were very Anabaptist, for what we know, in their beliefs. But they were persecuted as were the Anabaptists when they, when that movement began in the early 1500s. <clears throat> so that was the Christian culture in Europe. But America was, is better, right? Well, in America, a lot of people like to point to the Pilgrims landing in Massachusetts in 1620 as 
the beginning of Christianity in America. But in Puritan New England, there was a form of godliness that didn't really have a whole, whole lot of spiritual depth. And other groups were persecuted to the point that there is documentation that some Quakers were executed by the Puritans. Christianity was more outward than inward. The idea of a new Israel was prevalent in New England, and it justified the annihilation of the Indians, because God had led his people to a new country, the new Canaan land, and God intended his people to drive out the inhabitants thereof. Somebody came up with that idea. And the new Israel concept prevailed for the next several centuries. Now, yes, in Pennsylvania, William Penn could be credited for attempting to create a Christian society on biblical principles. And yet, it didn't, something didn't hold out. Before long, the Quakers got pushed aside by men who would use force. After all, more people in society believe that way. The Quakers got voted out. The Quakers had even tried to have a land without courts or jails. They were going to live by biblical principles. But somehow, human nature prevailed in the hearts of some people, and it became necessary to have a judicial system and deal with these people. <clears throat> so while, as in a whole, America has offered religious freedom... And we appreciate that. We do know that non-resistant people have been have suffered during times of war for their beliefs, for refusing to go to war. And some have even been martyred. Most people don't point that out when they talk about the religious freedom of America. During the 1800s, Christianity was more cultural and spiritual. Reading, I have this book, Pilgrims and Politics, written by Michael Martin, where a lot of my thoughts came from. Springboard for a lot of my thoughts this morning. And he says in there, from 1800 to 1900, Protestant churches grew dramatically, but had very little emphasis on discipleship. Membership and institutional growth was a measure of success. Emphasis on repentance, instruction in new members, and church standards faded or disappeared. And then there was a concept, a manifest destiny that prevailed. Did anybody ever hear a concept of manifest destiny? A few. I did not before I read the book. It was a new thought to me to take it to this point. <clears throat> Reading again from the book. The doctrine of manifest destiny paved the way for the early North American settlers to displace the Indians and opposing Europeans and claim that they wanted, claim what they wanted in the new land. When people in England questioned the Puritans' right to simply take the land, John Winthrop even found manifest destiny in the Bible. If Abraham was called to go out and take possession of other people's lands, the Puritans could do the same. The Indians were viewed as mere savages who lived on the land without truly owning it. It was obvious that this land was destined to have property lines, permanent houses, farms, fences, and cattle. It was equally clear that the Puritans' safe passage to America, that by the Puritans' safe passage to America, God had called them to subdue any opposition in accomplishing this task. He had sanctioned any violence necessary to achieve his goals. Manifest destiny denied the rights of others in order to establish the same rights for newcomers. Manifest destiny motivated the Americans in the Revolution. After revolutionary victory, this doctrine became practically an article of faith for millions of Americans. 
They believed that God had created a new man in America, Northern European in heritage, Protestant in religion, Democratic in government, and white in complexion. And this new man was destined to rule the continent from sea to sea, if not the world from pole to pole. Manifest destiny was inflated by the fact that America succeeded. In 150 years, a wilderness yielded rich farms, shabby villages became bustling cities, and an uncertain patchwork of colonial garments formed a unified republic. Based on these successes, many Americans believed that they could do anything. They considered themselves right. They believed that God had rewarded them with wealth and power and thought that they were on the path to an even brighter destiny. But such thoughts did not first appear in this country. They are not unique to America. Horace, Cicero, and many other Romans thought their empire or their empire on the same terms. They too built their manifest destiny on wrong theology, which in their case was idol worship. In many cases, manifest destiny in America was even explained as an external force that simply moved the country like a pawn, thus absolving the people of any wrongs committed in pursuit of their destiny. Such thoughts, I could say, sound like blasphemy. And he goes on to say in the book, We should be very grateful for God's hand in moving the civil authorities to eventually reaffirm and expand religious freedom, because this provides a safe haven for non-resistant Christians today, for the most part. So that's a picture of manifest destiny. Such a terrible concept that justified unbiblical ideas. I will make it clear that I am not trying to be anti-American. It's just I realize that I cannot identify with either side of the political spectrum, not the far left and not the far right. I feel... I would say I feel blessed to have been born here with the freedoms and opportunities that this country gives. But I cannot say, and I cannot be, proud to be an American. Simply because this is a blessing God has given me. I am blessed to be an American, but I cannot be proud. I am blessed to be able to live in America, but I cannot be proud to be American. But I'm not promoting anti-American concepts either, as some do. Why should, be where, why should we beware the idea of a Christian society? I think we've seen some of it already, but so-called Christian societies have always been and always will be, to some degree, apostate when the church and the state get married, it is spiritual adultery. And I believe we see a picture of this in Revelation 17. A few verses here. Revelation 17, verse 3. Here John says, so he, carried, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked in gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abomination and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered in great admiration. Now, I don't want to get into prophecy. I don't claim to understand everything written in these chapters. But I, in reading this, I believe the whore here, the woman, talked about is a picture of the apostate church. It had jo- she had joined with and controls the political system, which we see 
18, verse 3, For all the nations have drunk with the wine of her wrath and her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And we had, and we saw how this woman, the apostate church, as I would understand it, persecuted and killed the followers of Jesus. Now, while most of the persecution of Christians in the world is not coming from an apostate church at this time, it certainly happened in the past, especially when Catholicism controlled the world. And there are some who say this is simply a, there are some who, Protestants, who look at this passage and simply say it's a picture of the Catholic Church. I think there could be more to it. I think it could be a picture of the apostate church today and a picture of an apostate church in the future. And it's possible that in the future, the apostate church will, on a large scale, persecute the true church. If we are not careful, we could get excited about the idea of a Christian society, a Christian nation, and become a part of an ungodly system. And the idea of manifest destiny that our country is right, our country goes forward no matter what, could take control of us. We could be swept along with nationalism. It's actually a form of pride, as we heard about pride earlier today. Nationalism ends in ism. Sounds like a false religion to me. And I think to some degree it is. Nationally, nationalism demands loyalty. And many people have given their loyalties to their nation. Songs have been written to that extent. I won't get in. I won't quote them to you. But songs have been written that mix the church and the state. Pledging our allegiance to the country. But we cannot have our allegiance to places Eventually, sooner rather than later, there will become a conflict between the two. The idea that Christians must get involved in the Christianizing of society. Let me start over. I missed something or two. It could seem right, from a human perspective, to get involved in the political system to have a positive impact on society. We can make things better. We can maintain our freedoms so that we can teach our children as we wish. Sounds like a noble idea, but there's going to be a... We could get drawn to places where we do not want to be. And there has been an idea in the past, and I think it continues today, I'm sure I know it does, that Christians must get involved in the Christianizing of society to make way for the return of Christ. Not quite sure where all that comes from Scripture, but I believe that Christ is going to once again come to earth and set up his kingdom on earth. Actually, I know it doesn't come from Scripture. But Paul says here, in this passage we read this morning, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. It's going to be a falling away. It's where I get the idea. And then this falling away may still, may well, and I believe it will be, people that still claim to be Christian. They'll be looking for a Christ to set up his throne on earth. Someday, the Antichrist will come and rule, and many Christians will accept him. But Paul says, this individual in verse 4, will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth on the temple of God, shewing himself that he is God, that he is God. Paul is warning us that someday there's going to be a, I think this could be considered a Christian society in its own form. 
And Paul's warning us about that so, so we don't get deceived by it. Don't get deceived by this false Christ who comes claiming to be Christ and setting up a kingdom on earth. So all Christian societies of the past have contained the spirit of Antichrist. They have claimed Christ but made their own truth, such as manifest destiny. And it will always be this way. We cannot compromise truth for the idea of a Christian society. Even though it may seem better than a godless society on the surface, but it will be in the spirit of Antichrist. We could fall... If we're too involved in the idea of a Christian society, we put ourselves at risk of falling for the Antichrist system. And we must realize the mystery of iniquity is at work. Verse 7 here is an interesting verse. The mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Hard verse to understand. I looked at this verse a long time, studied it. came to an understanding for myself, anyway. For the younger ones in the audience, iniquity is a word that isn't part of our regular vocabulary very much, but iniquity is lawlessness, doing what we want without any laws. It's a violation. Iniquity is a violation of God's law. Iniquity is doing my own thing regardless of what God says. Many professing Christians today do claim a freedom to do as they please, regardless of what God says, even though they came to be. And that's what happens in a Christian society. They make their own rules contrary to God's rules. And that is iniquity. The mystery of iniquity is at work. I think the mystery is talking about the fact that Satan is working in secret, making wrong seem right. That's what Satan does, after all. He makes wrong seem right. And Satan would love to take this temptation of making wrong seem right to a higher level. The spirit of Antichrist is at work, but someday the Antichrist will come on the scene and deceit will intensify. It says here that only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That, it's hard to understand. Now, do a word study here. The word letteth and the word re- withholdeth in the verse 6 are the same word. So we so could say only he who now withholdeth will withhold until he be taken out of the way. That he be referring to God, I believe. So God is holding back Satan from working his mysteries of iniquity and deceiving people just for our benefit so we don't get deceived beyond what we can handle. But someday, God will turn Satan loose to a higher degree and deception will intensify. That's a scary concept. And that is the reason why we need to be firmly rooted in the Scripture. And there are some who believe that before this happens, the Christians will be raptured out of the world. I don't spend too much time trying to figure out when a rapture will take place and the Christians be removed from the situation in this world's system. But I'm personally, I'm not ready to count on being taken out. So I don't have to face any kind of increased deception. I think it's more important that we be prepared to stand than to simply hope we don't have to stand because we're gone, just in case we are still here. We do not want to be a part of the adulterous church that joins with the Antichrist and his system. We, the call goes out there in Revelation 18, Call it out, Revelation 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. 
we must separate ourselves from the idea of a Christian society. Be firmly firmly rooted in the Word of God because no society can be fully Christian. We must remember that Christians are always going to be in the minority. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. The key word for here, little. The true church is little. If the flock is little, there will not be an entire society that is Christian. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who will live godly will suffer persecution. And while we may not feel persecuted right now, and we do have it good, we do realize that sometimes, at times, we feel disdain from the outside world, even professing Christians, for our desires to believe the entire Bible, to practice all scriptural principles especially those that make us look different from the surrounding society. And there are those who look at us and say with disdain, if all Mennonites would just vote, we could get some good laws passed. They look at the high numbers of people, especially in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, who refuse to vote for their scriptural because of their scriptural convictions, and they see a block of people that they feel could sway the political system. But again, there could never be a Christian society as a whole. Third point I want to look at. Christians who live in a Christian society realize not everything Christian is Christian. Kind of a play on words there. Christians who live in a Christian society realize not everything Christian is Christian. Another way to say it, not everything that's called Christian is biblical. We see a picture of who is going to be deceived by this Antichrist. In verse 9 here, the passage we read, Second Thessalonians 2, says, even he who is coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness and unrighteousness and them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So while he's got his power from Satan, he is going to look like he has power from God. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But in Second Timothy 3... Paul talks about a form of godliness. 2 Timothy 3, I guess I'll start with verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They have a form of godliness, and yet these people do their own thing. I think some of those things we can see in the previous verses, verses 1 to 4, how wicked they are. Even though they have a form of godliness, they have enough Christianity to soothe their conscience, to make them feel good that they are people of God. Most people, after all, want to go to heaven when they die. When someone dies, often, out in society, everyone talks about how they went to heaven. And suddenly, everybody, no matter how they lived their lives, was a great person who's in heaven as a new angel. Another interesting doctrine. But anyway, we won't go there. Enough Christianity to soothe, to soothe the conscience. And there is even some interest in learning about God. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Some people, interest, some people are interested in learning about God, but they're never able to get what they're looking for because they don't want to do. They don't want to do what God says. They don't want to live life 
God's way. They want to live life their way. And then, dropping down to verse 13 there in 2 Timothy 3, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's, it's important to note that many of the deceivers in the world are actually just deceived themselves. They don't have a will. It's not necessarily their desire to do wrong, to live against God's principles. But they, they've merely been deceived themselves and repeating what they've been taught. And they keep teaching false doctrines and they're blind to the truth. They've been taught how to experience, they've been taught how to explain away scripture. And it's important to remember this as we relate to them. Paul says also in 2 Timothy 2.25, In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We need to relate to these people in a spirit of meekness. Because it's possible that we could win some of them for the truth. We cannot be arrogant. We must be meek as we relate to them. And we must be careful who we allow to teach us. In the sermons we listen to, books we read, read, and the website websites we consult. There's a lot of so-called Christian information out there that is unbiblical. Once, back in the days when I listened to a decent amount of radio preachers, I heard a well-known radio preacher say, and he was a very patriotic one too, Christians are commanded to resist evil in the world. I never found it in the Bible. My Bible says about the exact opposite, resist not evil. <clears throat> These teachings are out there. The idea we got to deal with the evil in the world. We got to go to war and stop evil. So, as we relate to people who claim to be Christian, yet their lives don't live up to what they claim, it is important to remember that we are not the judge of who is and who is not a real Christian. I do believe it is possible that there are those who don't understand scripture as we do, who may well be true Christians. So we're not to judge who is and who is not a real Christian. But we do know that we will be judged according to the word of God. We must let, we must let these people in God's hands. He will sort things out. But we must be careful, though, who we allow to teach us, no matter how sincere they seem. The word of God is the final authority in belief and practice. We must never let anyone tell us otherwise. Continuing to think on the idea of not everything Christian, not everything that's called Christian is Christian. We need to remember that anyone claiming to be Jesus is not. He is an antichrist. And someday there will be the antichrist to be the ultimate deceiver. And we need to be well-versed in the truth so that we do not get carried away. Because especially when the Antichrist comes, there will be a level of deception I don't believe the world has ever seen. We'll take a look at this. Jesus warned about himself. And it may seem like a bold statement to say that anyone claiming to be Jesus in this world is not. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, beginning verse 23, Jesus says, then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall be there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall shew great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore they shall say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, 
and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus said clearly what his second coming is going to look like. It's going to be as lightning. It's going to be instant. Lightning doesn't have a gradual building up. Lightning happens in one bright flash. It's instant. And Jesus is not going to change his mind and come back in another way. This individual, the Antichrist, will be, has a very convincing aspects about him. As we saw in verse 9 there, Second Thessalonians 2, he's going to have power and signs and lying wonders. He's going to work miracles. And we see that in Revelation 13. We're warned these things ahead of time so we can be ready to reject them if we see it happen. Then we see, John says here in Revelation 13, there was this beast, and he had authority. And story verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded unto death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And they were so impressed that he had this deadly wound that was healed. And then verse 13. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Now they made his image. And he had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause it, that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So God allowed them to have the power to create an idol that became alive. It's no wonder Jesus warned about the danger of being deceived. These are things that I believe someday are going to happen in a so-called Christian society. It's not going to be... I believe it will not be easy to believe that such things are wrong. And if we're alive in that time, we can be sure we'd be accused of being a heretic to say that that is not God. But we must love the truth. For those who know the truth and love the truth, the man of sin the Antichrist, will not really be hard to identify just by the fact that he claims to be Christ because Jesus said he's not coming back in that way. And very likely there will be areas of his life that will not line up with Scripture. Just the way he talks. We see also in Revelation he speaks blasphemies against God. That's not how Jesus related to his father when he was on earth. He's, this individual is going to speak blasphemy. He may, claim to, he may claim the right to rewrite scripture to fit his narrative. Or he will have some prophet rewrite it for him to make the way for him. So not everything that's promoted as being Christian or of God is biblical. And final point, Christians who live in a Christian society realize the need to hold fast to the truth. We need to hold biblical truths and the traditions that have come from them. Paul said in our passage here this morning, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. To hold the biblical truths and even the traditions that have come from them. Too often those who throw off the traditions, because they say these traditions are not found in the Bible, soon end up throwing off the biblical truths also. Traditions are not bad. They can give stability and structure, which gives strength to a church and a people. Traditions are the applications of scriptural principles. And yet we must be careful that these traditions do not become the scriptural principles in and of themselves. 
if there truly was a Christian society, such a society would strive to live out biblical principles. Such a society would have interest in what the Bible says, and certainly would not hate those who try to live by biblical principles. Such a society would guard against temptations as a society. Does this happen in our society? As the song says, is this wild world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Is that how the world functions? Is it helping us be godly? No. A truly Christian society would not tolerate uncleanness as a society. There would still be the Satan tempting us, but the whole society would not be putting uncleanness in front of us. The idea of a Christian society is is a hypothetical idea. Therefore, Christians must be on the guard of anything that is considered a Christian society. And we can conclude that we do not live in a Christian society. Christians must know the truth so they can recognize counterfeits. Jesus warned of the possibility of the elect being deceived. That's a scary concept. But it does not have to happen to us. We were warned ahead of time so we can recognize it when it happens, if it happens in our day. John said in, Jesus said in John 8.32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We are given the truth to give us a freedom not to follow the crowd in the wrong direction because we have a compass in the truth. We are in bondage to sin if we reject the truth. There's a some people from a patriotic standpoint put signs in the yard to say walk as free people. I believe as Christians we also can walk as free people. We can walk in freedom following the word of God. Because we know the truth. We're free to not follow the crowd in the wrong direction. And I believe that with this freedom comes the power to do right. To not love the truth is dangerous. We see here who got deceived. It's those that did not love the truth. Because they did not love the truth, God sent them strong delusions that they should believe a lie. That they might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The same idea that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 1. That God gave them over to vile affections because they rejected him. What is truth, Pilate said. In another place, Jesus says to his father, Thy word is truth. This world is an evil place, and God's word will direct us. We need to hold God's word in high regard Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're supposed to have hold fast to doctrine. It gives us right theology. God's word reproves and corrects us when we go wrong. God is merciful. He will help us to stay on the right track if we have a heart to do right. And we do not have to fear that God will quickly reject us if we are wrong, because he is merciful. He doesn't want to reject us. But we've got to keep a moldable heart so that we can be corrected to get back on the right track. The Word of God makes us thoroughly furnished. We're well equipped. The Word of God will will equip us to handle the deception in the world. The Word of God will inoculate us against false theology because we can recognize it. So we as a society, we live in a society that claims as, as a whole to be Christian. Even though it, as a whole, even though it is moving in the opposite direction, but I believe in the local area anyway in which we live, society as a whole will still claim to be Christian. 
But we cannot let this society to shape us and make us deformed. We are not to be conformed to the world, even if the world claims to be a Christian one. We are part of another kingdom. Our king says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Many of the subjects we looked at today could have been a complete message in and of themselves. The point I wanted to get this morning is that we are followers of Christ and not merely a part of a cultural Christianity that to a greater or lesser degree is unbiblical. So we need to remember that we are part of another kingdom, that there will not be a Christian society. We need to remember not everything that is called Christian is biblical. And we need to remember to love the truth and hold fast to the truth because it will protect us from being carried about by every wind of doctrine. May God help us to this end. Could we kneel in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing your truths to us so that we can be thoroughly furnished. Thank you that we do not have to be deceived. We do thank you for the freedoms that we do experience in the nation in which we have been blessed to live in. Just pray we would not take these freedoms for granted. We pray we would be aware that with the freedom comes the risk of being lax in our Christian lives. And just pray that we could remember, no matter how easy it is, to remember you and to not get caught up in the spirit of the age. Thank you for our church. Let's pray that as a church we could honor you with all we do and keep the Bible in the forefront. Be desirous to follow your word. Just thank you for Jesus and his willingness to come to earth and die for our sins. It's in your name, his name we pray. Amen.